0: Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I state your name. You solemnly swear to support and defend and the Constitution of the United States, the United States. Against, all against all enemies, foreign and domestic, foreign and, domestic. And, to and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And to the same. Then I will obey. And I will obey. The orders, of the orders of the President of the United States, United States and, the and the orders of those officers, those officers appointed over me, appointed over me according, to according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Of military justice. So, help me God. so help me God. Listeners, thank you for tuning in for another episode of the American Vet Podcast. I want to say thank you for all that you do, all the listeners out there, all the reviews and the likes that I'm getting. Um, and if anybody wants to be on the show, just you know email me, Dave at Americanvetpodcast.com. Um, you can go to my website, Americanvetpodcast.com, and you can find me on there, request to get on the show, and we'll have some fun. Uh, to this episode, I'm sitting down with Chris. Chris is a 25-year Marine Corps veteran who's been deployed to Afghan and kuwait in 2002 he's been to kuwait and iraq 2002 to 2003 he went to iraq again in 2006 to 2007 chris has been awarded with the presidential unit citation a bronze star and a joint accommodation service medal now he's a ceo of a manufacturing company and also a special public defender Missouri, handling criminal cases for the poor. Chris, once again, thank you very much for being on the show. And how are you doing tonight?
1: Hey, Dave. Thank you uh, for having me. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to be on. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the thanks goes out to you, sir. Uh no, it's uh, it's my pleasure. I, I was um, I was really. Excited when I saw your your podcast because it's uh it's something we don't do enough of. It's a really important mission, which is telling the veteran story. Absolutely. So, who were you before the you know before the Marine Corps and like
0: you
1: know <laughs> talk to me about like before military? Oh my goodness. So I grew up in North County, St. Louis. And anybody who's out there who knows the area, I grew up doing boondockers and chains and fist fighting and drinking beer. <laughs> and that was my Friday night ritual. I can't tell you how many fist fights I was in on a Friday, Saturday night, and how much beer I drank. Uh, played football. Uh, it was just, you know, it was the 70s. And if you ever saw Dazed and Confused, that was my life. <laughs> so um, I went to college. Uh, I wanted to join the Marine Corps right out of college and i mean out of high school my dad wouldn't let me he wanted me to get a college education and okay. uh so i went and i promptly drank and you know caroused and which was great <laughs> training for the marine corps so uh <laughs> <laughs> at least got your liver prepared yeah I got my liver prepared and then my, my dad passed away suddenly when i was 19 uh-huh. and uh when that happened um you know, I started doing a lot more of the unhealthy things. And one day I just, I kicked my own ass and I said, you drive down the recruiter. Because I'd always wanted to be a Marine. I had since I was a young boy. And uh I signed up and I shipped and that was it. That was the beginning of uh, actually 27 years sojourn. So, oh, okay. um, you know, it was a a, a great Great experience formative to my life, and it still defines to this day who I am yeah absolutely and uh you know thanks uh twenty seven years that's
0: a long time that is a long yeah. time to be in the marine Corps and uh yeah, yeah go ahead
1: now I was just say yeah you know i when I joined and this is i think one of the great truths about about military service and 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 it's the continuing purpose that we have. And we we when I joined, I still had uh, people who I served under who were Korean War veterans. All of our NCOs, uh, staff NCOs, and officers, senior officers were all Vietnam veterans. Um, and they taught those lessons and handed them down to us. And yeah. and you know, to me, probably the most grad, uh one of the greatest things I've had the opportunity to do as a Marine is to give those lessons and pass those down to the next generation because the time passes quickly. I mean, I was, I went to a retirement ceremony for a master sergeant and I said, a top, I said, uh, I was a corporal at the time. And I said, um, why did you stay in for 20? He said, well, I got drafted, went to Vietnam. Then I was like, what am I going to do now? I don't know. I'll sign up for three more years and I'll figure it out. Yep. And then those years, those, that tour was up and then I hadn't figured it out. And I said, well, I'll sign up for three more. And next thing you know, I was in for 20. So, <laughs> you know, it was just became a way of life. I, I just loved too much to to walk away from.
0: Absolutely. I absolutely get that. You know, um, the camaraderie's there and, you know, you're doing, you doing, you got a purpose every day. I'm not saying people out there don't have a purpose, but, you know, it's definitely uh, an honor to put the uniform on every day and to, to do it for 20 Twenty seven years is amazing. I mean, I only did four years and I was like, ah, I'm out.
1: <laughs> well, I tell you what, but that that's amazing. That's one of the things I, I try to, to emphasize with, with veterans when I talk to them is, you know, where you served is not what's important. What you did right. is not what's important. It's that you served your country uh in some capacity which makes you a uh, a citizen of in the truest sense. So yeah. I, I, I think all it means for me is my knees hurt really badly and I've got some great stories and I'm interesting at the bar. So that's uh, <laughs> that's kind of it.
0: So, I mean, to 27 years as as a Marine Corps, you must have seen a lot of that change. You know, you've always hear oh, people like this, you know, that's, you know, back, you know, even my grandfather, my gra- grandfather is a Vietnam veteran, but he was in the Army. Um, yeah. So he didn't have it as bad. But no, I'm just kidding. Um <laughs> <laughs> but he tells me he's like, you know, crap. He's like, you know, even back in my time, they're were, they were allowed to do things like that. I'm sure you went through all that. Oh,
1: yeah, I was uh, reflecting and preparing for, for this show that when I enlisted, um, it was at the very beginning of Ronald Reagan's buildup of the military. So we were coming out of the malaise of post-Vietnam uh, there was huge investment in equipment and in people, uh, you know. So we are seeing crazy, like twelve, fourteen percent pay increases a, a annually. Now, I'm not saying I was making a lot. I mean, my 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 first enlist, I was making four hundred dollars a month. Right. But they were still trying to improve the, the life of the Marines. You know, we're using Vietnam equipment. Uh, you know, everything that I, I all the equipment that we use, we we're still driving jeeps and wearing steel pots and. And uh, wearing the old, I mean, it, it looked like it was right out of uh siege at Firebase Gloria. You know, we were, you know, we were wearing a little more modern uniform, the old Poplins, but tactics were very still very different. And, um, you know, we had nothing like the, like the way my career ended on our horizon. We were training for traditional Marine Corps missions, which were principally uh the Korean Peninsula and uh southwest asia and uh we were just and then of course still planning for europe so just saw everything modernized i saw you know so much change Um, you know one of the things a lot of people don't understand about culture is that uh sometimes change is gradual sometimes it's very dramatic and uh you know when i came to the marine corps we had a lot of the vestiges of the end of the vietnam war which I like to tell people, and they don't, a lot of Marines don't like to hear this, it doesn't mean every combat veteran is a good Marine. There was a lot of really shitty Marines. Yep. And uh, I saw the end of that. And mercifully, they were replaced with with what became the foundation. General Gray was a true visionary, the commandant, um, uh, who, who really changed everything for the Marine Corps in the, in the late 80s. And uh, he he got us out of that, that malaise. And I call it malaise, it really was. That where we tolerated, um, persevered, and it was really just from having come off of Vietnam, and which was not a popular war, getting rid of what were a lot of good people, and tolerating substandard people and equipment. Yeah. And uh, President Reagan and General Gray changed that for us. And so then I bring that all the way back to today, where you know I left, uh, I retired just as the Osprey was coming on. Um, you know, and, and just crazy changes in performance and tactics and equipment. I, I will say this, my last helicopter ride ever was still in the CH-46. So, <laughs> you know, I, I thought there was some irony that after a long career, you know, my first and last helicopter ride was on the Vietnam era helicopter. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. I mean, and I think you hit it right
0: there and the, the nail on the head, you know, it's, you know, and I agree with you. I mean, not every veteran is a good combat veteran. No. Um, you know, you got your good you got your good leaders out there. Oh. Give me one second, hold on. My dog just came running down. <laughs> <laughs> and with all the wires here, she she likes to hop
1: up on my lap and stuff like that. So, oh, that's awesome. Um uh so, yeah, I mean, I think I was, you know, not every veteran's a good combat veteran. And,
0: and it's the same thing with, with Garrison, too. You know, you get these guys that get the power, that get the rank, they get, you know, you pick up corporal, you know, it's the first rank that's not, that's earned and it goes straight to their head. And, uh, you know, you get a lot of bad, bad mojo out there. And uh, I got to ask you were, you,
1: were you in for the MRAPs? Were you able to see the MRAPS? I did. I, uh, yeah. you know, re- remember I started in Humvees. Yeah. I mean, um, in in Jeeps. Yeah. And uh, you know, again, right out of RAP Patrol and those tiny things that you know four guys could pick them up. I saw the beginning of the Humvees. Uh, the MRAPS. My last uh, deployment in six and seven. Um you know, we were already to the level three Humvees and the MRAPs and the Buffaloes. And, yep. and it was just crazy because during the invasion, we were driving soft sided, uh, Humvees. Uh, we took the doors off of, we took our tops off, of, you know, and by the time we went back, we were driving, you know, class 20, you know, vehicles that were, you know, armored to figure, the max, Yeah, armored to the max, which of course, <laughs> It was real counter to the Marine Corps' uh, tactics. And, you know, we now are going back to, as you're probably aware, Marine Corps is making a strong move back to its uh, amphibious roots. Yeah. So, yeah. No, yeah. So that's, you know, that's one thing, you know, reminds
0: me of, uh, I go to MCT and uh, I remember, you know, Marine co- combat training for the non-Marines out there, um, somewhere you go after boot camp. And... I remember we're doing convoy training and my instructor at the time is like, okay, you're taking small arms fire, get out of the Humvee and return fire. And, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm like, why in the hell would I get out of this Humvee and return fire? (laughs) I'm in a huge, you know, in my mind, you know, because, you know, I'm belligerent still, you know, I'm naive a little bit, you know, going like, well, if I'm in a Humvee, I'm untouchable. You know, I'm Superman. Why am I going to get out? Well, then, then you're in the army. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you have to get out and destroy the enemy. You know that's uh, that one, that is the one thing that, that hasn't changed. I will tell you my biggest gripe. Yep, with the advent of all the armor was you couldn't just turn outboard and take a leak. <laughs> you, uh, you know, well, I mean, when you, you first could,
0: when you first got in, you had no doors. I mean,
1: that was pretty simple. No, that's what I'm saying. You could we could be going. <laughs> 50 miles an hour, you could just, you know, you could just turn outboard and, and, and relieve yourself, you know, while you're driving, uh, you know, then you had to turn to water bottles and, and all that, you know, because the one thing that you weren't doing was there's no frigging, you know, gas station to pull over. And, and so there was no stopping. I mean, the longest convoy I did was 22 hours oh, wow. and, uh, you know, so completely a different experience, but I will say At least they had air conditioning. Yeah. And that was always blew my mind was you step outside it's 125. You get inside and it's 50 because of course those things aren't regulated. You know, they just crank AC. Yeah. Like it's a side of beef. Well, they had to put AC in it because you stopped
0: taking the doors off. (laughs) (laughs) All
1: right. So here's a, here's a story for you about, about the doors being off. We are, um, we had just, Started the invasion. I think we were, we just left our first camp, which was at Jalabah um, in the desert. Um, and we were moving towards Nazaria. And uh, I was sitting in the back. Our EOD officer was driving. And it was his MV. He made it very clear it was his MV and he was driving. We all had to sit. So um, I, on a, back right side. and I got my legs outboard because I was stretching and uh, you know, I was getting really, of course, you know how uncomfortable Humvees are. Oh, yeah. And um, and I'm sticking my legs out and all of a sudden I hear a smack. I go, huh, must have kicked up a rock. And we just keep driving and we, get, we stop at a fuel point somewhere along the way and I get out, you know, stretch and I'm walking around. I looked. there's a big hole, <laughs> bullet <laughs> hole about that, about that big, about six inches from where I was sitting. And I was going, huh, good thing he missed. So, uh, you know, it's kind of the randomness, but that was all it was sort of what we were talking about. The, you know, why would you get out? You know, these were soft skin. There was no protection. You know, the only thing we took off were the canvas doors. Uh, so there was no protection with the doors anyway. And then, of course, last time was there like driving a steel vault. Yeah, (laughs) you know, which I was still, I was, I was, in fact, appreciative of. You know, it's still a poor design to sustain to survive blast, but um, you know, it it did make it a lot better for people. And and by the way, I like to when when I'm talking to, especially combat vets, and 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 Marines are the ones the worst at this. They start talking shit about surviving combat. I like to remind them that more truck drivers died in Iraq than infantrymen and uh and, and that is uh something that doesn't get mentioned very often and, and and that is of course, in an asymmetrical war, everybody's in danger right. everybody you know uh, I mean, I had a nephew who was he was an infantryman, but he got he got uh, blown up twice an IED blast, but he was the Mrap driver, you know and uh so that was a obviously a difficult job. So I appreciate that. And I like to give a shout out to truck drivers for that reason. And in the army and the Marine Corps, just cause you know, you don't get to choose where that thing's going to blow up. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that self, that, uh,
0: that self feeling that you're responsible for everybody in there and you don't want to be the, you know, huh.
1: you know, Yeah. I mean, I never deployed. Um, I can just imagine. And, uh, you know, I, I I wish I deployed,
0: but I just never. You know, it never never happened for me. So,
1: so I was talking to a a Canadian soldier in Afghanistan. I was there in 2002 during Operation Anaconda. Okay. And we we're just having that chat, and I said, "Hey, this is the first time Canadians have deployed since 1958." And I go, "How do you feel about that?" I go, well, "You know, how do you serve?" He's a he's a career soldier. I said, "How do you serve?" In the military, knowing that you may never go, you know, the chance you going anywhere just almost non-existent. He goes, I asked that question one time to a sergeant major, and he said, You don't he says you, you don't do it for yourself. He says, you train for those that follow. He goes, it's it's the soldier you train who will need that training. He may be the one that goes, you know? Yeah. And and so the, the, that continuous line I was telling you about, about the Marine Corps generation. You know, if you think about every, you know, today, the people that I served with during the invasion are now very senior people, but they're going to pass it on. And then there's a lot of people who are, you know, most of the Marine Corps today, at any given point, what is it? Half the Marine Corps lance corporals are below. So, you know, there's people who are in right now who never deployed, never served. And, and, and yet they're critical to that unbroken chain and that, that story and that parent pass on the ethos. So, you know, all, all deploying means is, is, um, you know, I just was ready when I was called and that's, that's, you know, I wasn't like I earned it or I deserved it or I, you know, I just happened to be there. Right. When it was, when it was needed. All right. So where was your, uh, so, what was your MOS going through the Marine Corps? Uh, well, I, I, I did several things. And so one of the unique things about the Marine Corps, and, and also this is a reflection of something much less interesting, which is life in the reserves, is, uh, you know, you have opportunities to train and, and retrain. So I was an infantryman. Um, I was an admin clerk for a while. I was, uh, um, uh, I did that until I got commissioned in, 87, and then um, I was an infantry officer. Um, Then I got my law degree, and I uh, was a judge advocate for three years. Then I got out, and I became, uh, I went to, in the reserves, I went to school for, to become a a 1302, which is combat engineer. And that's actually what I did for my last uh, 14 years uh, in the Marine Corps. And uh, that's and it was in that MLS that I deployed and, and did all of, all of that. So um, I, I just I did a little bit of everything, but that's also because that's just kind of the way I'm wired. Right. I just like learning. I like doing new stuff. I don't like being bored. Um, you know, uh, that, that that's really it. So I've done a lot, There's a lot of different things. Yeah, I was kind
0: of reading the uh, the preliminary questions, and I was like, oh, man, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, we can probably have a seven-hour episode here with it. Well, you can always have me back
1: if you want to pick something out you want to talk about. Oh, absolutely. Um, Uh I'm having a brain fart here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whenever doubt, we can always talk shit about the Army or the Navy or something. When
0: you go to, you know, Afghan and, and Kuwait in yeah. 2002, um, now you're a combat engineer at this point. Yeah. You know, talk to me because as far as you're pretty much, I believe my, the guest on my show, I don't think I've had anybody that was in Iraq or Afghan or Kuwait or anything like that in 2002, right after 9 uh,
1: really. So, yeah, let me, I can illuminate that a bit. Um, okay. September 1st, I was in the reserves, back in the reserves um, in 2001. On September 7th, I was visiting a friend of mine down in Atlanta. I'd just come off of uh, some orders and I stopped in visit. and visited him. He's an intel officer and he leaned over to me and he says, Hey, Chris, he says, I just got this feeling something really bad is going to happen. And I said, Really? He goes, Yeah. I said, Okay. So uh, that was a Sunday I think Friday said I can't do my math but 911 was a Tuesday. Yep. And uh 911 happens and I went home um, and I just it was just a, the strangest experience I just my wife I, I walk in the front door and my wife's crying, you know, cuz she's upset obviously. All right. And she says what are you going to do? And I said I'm going to go back. Yeah. And I I went upstairs and I mean, I, this just sounds really corny, but this is where being the Lance Corporal just came, brought me into laser focus. I went upstairs. I literally broke out my Marine Corps issued packing list, laid it on my bed and I packed two sea bags. As much as I had physically available, that was, that was, that I was going to need. And I went and I sat, by, sat them by the front door and my kids still tell me about coming home from school going yeah, uh, we didn't really understand what was going on, but we saw the sea bags. We knew something was dad was going somewhere. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so I got a call that day to be down in New Orleans. Um, by Sunday, I was a, I was a division readiness officer for fourth Marine division, which is the Marine Corps reserve division. Mm-hmm. And I reported down there. And uh, initially I just thought I was going to be down there for a few months. Uh, just getting people ready for deployment. Didn't, think i'd be heading over and then one day the um personnel officer uh, says hey you're a 13 or two right i go yep he says okay he says you want to go to kuwait it's like yeah yeah so he goes okay and so um they put me on the list i get to mars sent down in tampa some gunny comes out he goes hey sir got some bad news he says uh your your uh your orders got canceled you're gonna have to he says, you're either going to have to accept a different assignment or you're going to uh, have to go back. I said, what else is there? He goes, well, there's a safety officer slot. I go, what the fuck's a safety officer? And I, he goes, <laughs> "I go, and that sounds horrible. I don't want to do that. Yeah. And he goes, well, then you're going to, he says, I'm sorry. sir. then you're just gonna have to go back. I said, okay, just give me that slot. I said, I can't go back. They, they threw me a party. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> I went, I show up in Kuwait, Camp Doha, which is a horrible place, and uh, uh, it's not really horrible. It's just it's a small base in Kuwait with very tall walls and a lot of army people in uh, very confined, relatively confined space. And um, I get there, and I walked up to the safety officer. I said, "Hey, sir," I said, "No offense, but I'm not going to work here." I said, "I'm going to go over to the engineer section. I'm going to get a job there." He goes, "Okay." I said, "Wow, that worked!" <laughs> so I, I walked over to the colonel, the engineers, and I said, "Hey, sir, I'd like a job here." And he goes, "I said, I told him what happened." He goes, "Okay, I'll take care of it." So that got me into the engineers and out of, out of safety. And um, and then one day, I was told I was going to be escorting. This is now February of two thousand and two, uh, and he says, um, "Oh, the assistant." Engineer officer says, uh, for the CFLIC, CFLIC, which is a CENTCOM acronym. But anyway, they said, uh, hey, uh, you're going to be escorting some people into Afghanistan. Um, I said, okay. And he says, uh, they are foreign nationals who are not authorized to enter the country, but I need you to escort them because they're going to be bringing. Mine clearing dogs into the country. I said okay. So uh, I packed and I got uh, on a on a C-130 and flew to Oman and um got we take off and and and, it, and we're like mid flight and I'm thinking, wow, you're freaking going to Afghanistan. So the Marines had just left and. We we were in an old North Carolina, and I kid you not, North Carolina Air National Guard C one hundred and thirty, and the air air uh, the the crew chief is like one hundred and twenty years old, and he's like, you know, he's a he's like, hey, this old bucket is going to rattle and shake a lot, but it's it's going to be okay. I said, <laughs> all right. So uh, I mean, we flew, and it was middle of the night, and uh, then they. You know, the lights went off, and everybody put on their Kevlar, and and we came screaming in at, you know, a couple hundred knots, and we banked heavy over the airfield, and we, we landed, and the lights came on just as we hit the ground. And uh, then we, we drove down to <clears throat> to uh, wherever they were dropping us off on the tarmac, and the tail came down, and, and, I mean, he's going, get off the plane. I mean, they had the airplane at high rev. And uh, we, we got everything off in like five minutes. And then the airplane just took off. And, I mean, went down the runway, took off in the sky. And, and I'm sitting there staring at the 101st Rackassan, the big, you know, Rackassan, Army Rackassan, which, you know, even Marine recognizes. And I was like, I'd seen it on TV. I was like, holy shit, Lozano, you're not in St. Louis anymore, you know? And um, that started my sojourn in... in and, uh, I get to, you know, the first thing we did was we deployed these, these dogs, um, and they began mine clearing because Afghanistan at the time was very heavily mined. Kandahar was, and then Bagram was, and, uh, they just, uh, no offense to my army brothers and I have some very dear army brothers, but they just were asked up and, um, nobody was really in charge of making any sense of the situation. So I then took two more teams of of dogs and handlers, and we flew to uh, Bagram, which at the time was, I don't know, in in all my years in the Marine Corps, I will tell you this was probably as, at the time, for people who have been there in the last few years will not understand this comment, but it was as rugged and as austere uh, all I can say was it was like it was like Call of Duty in real life. It was burned-out buildings. It was muddy and dusty at the same time. It was cold. It was just there was nothing but tents, burned-out buildings, and, and you know, people just trying to get stuff underway. And the army was surging at the time for what would become Operation Anaconda. And so I check in with the uh, army whatever the task force was, was in charge of the field operations. And again, very unprepared. And I just said, I told him, I said, Hey, uh, sir, uh, I'm going to stay and I'm going I'm to get things underway here because somebody needs to be charged. You guys are trying to surge, you know, 2,500 soldiers and there's not enough room and somebody's going to die. If they, you know, if they step on a landmine or we drive over, there's places filled because I've done all the intel It's filled with uh, anti personnel and tank mines. And there was just not enough forces or was not enough equipment and not enough time. And I said. And he just it was just like a Jedi mind thing. And he goes, "Okay." And uh, so I was there for four months and then and got we cleared thousands of square feet of minefields, any tank, any personnel mines. Um, You know, we had some injuries and uh, a couple of deaths along the way, but it was uh, really just very gratifying work. Right. Um, It gave me a chance. I got a chance to develop the tactics and procedures that then I was able to teach to the Army. The Army flew me to Fort Leonard Wood and the Marine Corps flew me to uh, DC and to um, uh, to Lejeune, to the Engineer School to you know teach what I had learned and you know that that was uh, while I was there I experienced a, a, a friggin' six oh uh, earthquake <laughs> and uh, which was tremendously entertaining I uh, I got to see the Afghans up close and. Uh, not all good stories, but plenty of them. Uh, and while I was there, it was, you know, we were just living the life that I dreamed of. Right. We were eating MREs and tray rats and shitting in friggin' buckets, you know, <laughs> buckets and, uh, which was better than the Afghans. They just shit wherever they feel like it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, they shit on their dinner plates. They are. Yeah. They're, they're, they're uh, I, I heard one army officer say we're bombing them from the, from the bronze age to the stone age. So, <laughs> but, but I got to see and do some amazing, amazing things. I got to see, you know, I got to see Operation Anaconda up close. Um, I didn't go into the mountains. That wasn't my job. My job was to support the flow of forces into, into the field by allowing them to move equipment and people. Right. and uh, you know, so that's so what I did, and it was just an amazing, amazing time, all right, so now that you're you know in two thousand and two, when you're in there and you're you know doing your support, doing
0: your job for anaconda, did you ever think that we would still be there today,
1: you know, no, going eighteen no. years later no no that the um <clears throat> the, the, there's no way that I think that. I don't think there's any way that we could have anticipated um, that it, we would be there that long. But we're not there because Americans aren't good war fighters. We're there because the politicians don't have the stones and the fortitude to see it to the end. Right. Um, terrorists are like weeds and like kudzu. They're not going to ever be gone. Right. You simply have to kill enough of them until they, they, they give up their desire to fight. Right. It's what the Brits did to, to the IRA. You have to simply wear them out until they stop. Right. And when we lost, we lost that fight when, when we started drawing down in 2008 and 2010, um, at least in a, Afghanistan. The, the, the problem with Iraq, of course, I was there for the invasion of Iraq, was we didn't have a plan going in. We just simply took down the government. Which, hey, bravo to uh, the military. But then there was no government plan for how we were going to handle the 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 outcome. The outcome, yeah, okay. You you, did away with Hussein and all his henchmen. Now what? I don't know. You know. (laughs) So that that just turned into a a a bad idea.
0: So definitely want to hit on the presidential unit citation. What deployment Mm -hmm. did you you know? Are you able to talk about, like, how you were awarded that? I mean, that's a pretty uh, big
1: deal, you know? Well, I mean, it's it's a unit award, right? So yeah. it, it, um, that was the first presidential unit citation awarded since 1968 to the Marine Corps. And it was for being part of the invasion of Iraq. That was um, awarded to the First Marine Expeditionary Force and to supporting units within it and uh, you know that was a it's it's funny that you asked me about that because I take more pride in that than than anything else that i see um you know it's just it was tremendously meaningful. I don't think anybody understands can truly appreciate what the American military and I can only speak to, to the marines because I, I know the army did a great job in in their in right. their half of the attack um but nobody understands just what we accomplished. Uh, We covered 600 kilometers across extraordinary difficult terrain against 10 divisions dealing with the collapse of a a regime. Um, We did it without breaking stride. We had the logistics, the people, the tactics uh, to, to get it done. But here's, to me, here's the most extraordinary part of that story when we started and I was part of um, I got to Kuwait in December 2002 when we were running exercises to to uh, exercise the war plans the original war plans were to take 180 days to get through these these divisions and uh, if anybody thinks that it was easy I'll tell them you go do it yeah right you know oh you just bombed them no it wasn't that friggin easy right there there was Marines win before they step on the battlefield. We knew the outcome was was what it was, but it was because of the tremendous amount of planning that we did. And so we had the people, resources, and tactics to, to accomplish it. But it was 180 days, and they said, not fast enough. Do it faster. So then we got down to four months. Not fast enough. Do it faster. And we're like, holy shit. That was a major at the time. And um, it led to an extraordinary confrontation. Emotions bubbled over. And if you ever want to see uh, raw emotion, a bunch of Marine majors um, who are the, the they're the, uh, you know, they're the ammo bears of the staff. They're the ones that do a lot of the heavy lifting uh, yeah. of planning. And uh, the emotions flowed over. There was actually a fist fight. It was a free. It was a bit of a, of a WWE um, cage match in a planning tent that quickly blew over. But that was just the tension of trying how to figure out how we we're going to do this was was overwhelming because we were also flowing forces, planning for the flow of forces, buying of equipment, all that at the same time. And finally, one day, General Conway said to the staff. The command authority has said we have 21 days to get to Baghdad. And he drew a line. and he said, you know, H hour plus 21. You have 21 days to figure out how to get us there. And we did. And we got there exactly 21 days. Wow. And And that was no accident. And... And it was because of the tremendous amount of, of work, so when we were awarded the presidential Unit citation, I wear that with, with pride um and it, it means more to me than the bronze star or anything like that that's uh you know the, 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 that that is um, you know one that hopefully hopefully doesn't ever have to be awarded again uh, right. you know because of course it means something tremendously bad's happened, correct. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. You definitely just from that. Like, I'm glad that you guys were able to get that award as opposed to, you know, a Nam or something like that. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. But I, I have I have those too. And it's like, yeah. Uh. You know. Hey, write yourself up for an award, or somebody has to write you up for a award. You know. Uh, officers like to do that for each other. Yeah. You know. But uh, yeah, no, it, it was. Uh. A really moving. And if you ever read the citation itself, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely something to be proud of. And I don't, you know, I don't think there's ever been a good accounting of the story. I've read the official, cause I'm a bit of a nerd. You know, I've, yeah. I I read the official um, Marine Corps uh, historical document that recounts it. And it's, um, you know, Marines love to document things that happen, And, um, and it was good to read it because I see a lot of names that I recognize. And, um, it just felt good to be part of something really big yeah. and to be part of something really important. And the fact that nobody knows about it really, other than we got to the goal line, um, is okay, you know, it, it, but it, it helps to have, a, you know, place to tell the story sometimes and you know, about, about doing that. Cause it was a, truly a thing of beauty. I, I, I uh, it just makes my heart warm to think about it because here's uh, here's a general Mattis story is it okay to tell yeah yeah tell go ahead answer? okay yeah. i don't want to commandeer your your
0: your podcast this this you're, it's all about you in this episode whatever you want to talk about <laughs>
1: <laughs> so i was my job on the staff of the engineer staff of, of the G3 was to do all the intel preparation of the battlefield so, my assessments of the battlefield terrain were what were used to make decisions about the tactics okay all right and so, I analyzed terrain and roads and bridges and you know forces and where where equipment was and what could we use, and what happens if you know so we're doing all of the bridging and all of the planning for the myriad of things, everything from dams being blown up to electric shock of the rivers to blowing up the bridges. And we had a plan. We actually had a plan. The the war plan itself was a thousand pages long. Uh, So there was a big oil field right on the North of the the border with Kuwait. And they said, all right, you can't blow it up because we're going to need it because that's how we're going to help fund the government. So whatever you do, you know, just be cool with the oil field. Okay. (laughs) Um, now oil fields are full of high pressure pipes and big pipes that move things around. And, you know, so I'd planned all the different gaps in those pipes that so we could go through and things like that. And there was a division of soldiers arrayed in this oil field and general Mattis comes in one day, he'd been PT and he's got his silkies on and his towel around his neck and he says hey colonel I'd, I'd been promoted at this point i was promoted on january 1st 2003 he says uh can you give me a brief on oafield i said yes sir and i general mass was a division first marine division commander i said yes sir and i gave him a, a quick brief on it and i said sure the um the, the biggest challenge we have is you know we're not going to be able to take our vehicles over these pipes he goes why not i said i told michael's fuck that he goes, they could buy new pipes. And I said, Well, sir, they're like 600 PSI pipes and they'll blow the bottom out of a Humvee. And he goes, nah. He kind of grunted. And you know what they did? They freaking changed the tactics. They went around it. And uh he he was not to be deterred. He he sent out, and I, I just wish I had kept a copy of this. Um, we had an army psyops unit attached to to us and General, Con- uh, General Mattis had a flyer made to be dropped into the oil fields and it, what it said was the Marines are coming, there is nothing you can do <laughs> and it said fight and you will die a violent death and then we will take your bodies and we will send them north so your friends can see what's coming next <laughs> And that, and he dro- had those dropped all over, you know, the southern part of Iraq. <laughs> and the invasion started, and the, the the division commander of that division surrendered within thirty minutes. He surrendered to a some random vehicle driving by. He flagged him down, said, "I surrender." <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, there's there's nothing that can stop a a Marine Expeditionary Force coming. No. There's just nothing nothing that could be done. No.
0: But it's just uh you know, I never actually got to see uh General Mattis uh face to face, but you know, yeah. me being the, the rank I was I you know, I hear stories about him and Chesty Polar and stuff like that, but yeah, you know, you're telling me it was like I you know, he comes back after his PT and he's got his t- towel around his neck yeah. and I'm like, all the pictures I've seen of this guy it was just, you know, straight and just gung ho and like
1: <laughs> he he was a, he was a real he was a real decent actually a very humble quiet person but he was not to be trifled with. And you know there were a lot of other general officers I dealt with who were just asses and of course most of those sixes are asses and uh-huh. you know so you get used to it as a as a younger officer or junior officer you get used to it um but he knew his stuff, and you did not want to bullshit him did not right uh, and general- general Conway, on the other hand was was a true gentleman he was a gentleman of the old style of genteel soft spoken but but very forceful and visionary in what he wanted to do and he surrounded himself with good people you know but uh i was I was actually. There, right after General Mattis fired one of his regimental commanders, and um, it was a a very gut-wrenching moment. I walked out of the way our camp was arrayed. uh, We had the the meth trailers, the 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 the, the working areas that we had, which in in the field were just called kind of converted semis that had tentage on them. We're all under, I mean, we were in the, in the desert. we had camo netting over and I walked out and, uh, it was this, uh, Colonel, I was like, I wonder why he's here. He's supposed to be frigging up North on the Tigris river. And, and then I find out he'd been fired and he looked like death. He looked like, what the hell happened? And then I come to find out General had just fired him. And he said, you know, there's. There's a mission to be done and you're standing in the way of, of that. So you have to go. And that wasn't, it really didn't strike fear in people. It it really drove purpose. Right. That's the magic of of, of General Madison and successful leaders. The, the one thing that I learned in, in leadership was there's no such thing as su- successful style of leadership, only successful leaders. Right. And, uh, you know, he had his own style. He loved humor. He was very Actually, a really funny guy. Of course, I think everybody's afraid not to laugh at his jokes. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the joke of of the day were Chuck Norris jokes, and he was, you know, it was a, he was. I always enjoyed my time around him. Not that I spent a lot of time with him, but you know, he'd come in periodically, ask questions, and there was no pretense. He was not a, you know, he was just a, a he was a regular guy. We we all had a mission and uh so that was that was my maddest story. Okay.
0: <laughs> That's a pretty good one. I mean, I don't I
1: definitely I don't have that. I've got drunk stories.
0: I got a bunch of those, but <laughs> Oh, I got I got those too, including one including one in Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, you got you got to walk into that one if you can.
1: <laughs> All right. So, I think I mentioned to you before the show started that the last thing you want to tell me is I can't. Yep. And um at the time, in, in, in February and March of 2002, of it was very much a joint, early stage joint ops. There was a lot of uh, multinational spe- special operations people there. SEAL Team 6 was there. We had Italian, Danish, Norwegian special forces. We had the Brits, the Royal Marines. Um, and so we had a lot of people there, but the, the, the people that I was who were working for me on mine clearing were included, uh, Norwegian engineers. And, uh, they were just spectacularly awesome soldiers. They did not, they, they spent more time sunning themselves and getting a tan because, you know, when you live in frigging near the Arctic circle, you know, uh, a, a bright sunny day is a big deal, but they were great soldiers. They just had their own way about them. And, uh, one day I walk in and into their their uh, tent where they prep prepare their meals, and uh, I see like six six eight cases of beer. I'm like, I'm thinking it's like near beer or something. It's like I pick up a can and I'm like, uh, um, hey, where'd you guys get the beer? And he goes, Oh. We got it from the Danish chaplain. <laughs> and I said, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, so you know, the army of course, is so uptight, you know, no alcohol and you know all kinds of restrictions and rules and and um, their camp was separated by barbed wire, triple standard barbed wire. Um, the, the living area at the time of Bogham was very minimal, the living space. So we were all kind of in the, on the airfield. Okay. And, uh, so their camp was relatively small, was typically around 20, to 30 of them. But I was with an eye shot of, you know, some high powered army officers and their rules. And there were only eight Marines in camp and most of them had either been counseled, fired, uh, or otherwise, you know chastised about something in their time there, and uh I'm like, we're gonna drink it right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and
1: they're like, Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, so they're like, I said, all right, I tell you what let's have a party um I'm gonna cook for you. I said, so you guys gotta you know, I said, what do you got? and we started pulling out cans of ham and beans and blah 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 and and um. Uh, we friggin' got slammed. And I mean, we I've got a picture. You might you mind if I grab a picture for you for a second? Yeah, go ahead. I know that nobody else is gonna see it, but I want you to see it. Yep. All right. That picture there is a, a friend of mine who's uh, I can't <laughs> oh, wow, Yeah. I can't use I can't use his name because he's uh he's involved in things. And um <laughs> we are that's Heineken, and uh we are in a Norwegian tent, and we are three sheets to the wind um i mean people it was just like a good Friday night in the barracks. I mean, people were sleeping outside. one guy fell into the the friggin place where they all pissed it's they had like a big trench slit <laughs> trench, and he fucking passed out and fell in it, and they had to haul him out and and uh you know, the Army was no wiser for it. So if there's any <laughs> high-powered Army officers out there, ha-ha, got, got by with it. But uh, it was a great point of pride that we that we held that party and uh, really memorable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. after all these years, you still got the picture right there. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I do. It's a very treasured one. It's just me and my friend uh, doing what we shouldn't be doing. He was also Marine, by the way. So he was uh, – this is how crazy the Marine Corps is he and I served together uh, at this point, probably 20 years prior and I get into Afghanistan and one day I'm in just a little uh, GP tent and I'd just been there for a couple of days and I hear so middle of the night, I hear, Hey, Lozano, <laughs> who the hell even knows my name here? And I, I stick my head out of my sleeping bag and I see this guy's, you know, cut out of the sky, standing there in the tent. And I was like, I said, Hey, uh, is that you? And he goes, yeah. And, um, we had a reunion right there, man. I hadn't seen him in years and, you know, he was there doing his thing. And, uh, so, wow. Yeah. I invited him to the party and we <laughs> still, we still talk about that. Was it, the,
0: now did, did he show his face to you? Did you guys meet up on the same day of the party or? <laughs> oh no, no, no. That, this was,
1: this, this first meeting with him happened only, I'd only been there a few days. The party happened probably two months later. Uh, you know, so I don't even, oh, oh here was actually the, the one of the funny things about that beer was the Danish chaplain was selling beer to raise money for their ball, whatever their version Danish ball was that they were going to have back when they got home. Yeah. So I thought, man, friggin'. Gotta love, gotta love the Dutch, man. <laughs> so I was like, they didn't care, you know, but he was selling it. You know, we got, you know, the Americans all uptight and these guys were like, hey, let's have a party. Yeah, nice way to,
0: nice way to uh, definitely wind down a little bit and, yeah, build up some camaraderie
1: yeah. out there and some morale. Right. Well, we, we, um, in six and seven, when I was in the, in, uh, Fallujah for the surge, um, the Marine Corps did, because by at this point, you know, it was a Marine Corps uh, thing. We um, did have beer for the Marine Corps ball or Marine Corps birthday. And uh, two beers, that was all we, we were limited to, but uh, which was awesome because they had, you know, the first sergeant, sergeant major, the sergeant major and the first sergeants all had like clipboards and they're like, you know, making sure you only got two beers. <laughs> but watching young Marines try to figure out how to get drunk off two beers is inspiring. They were actually talking like (laughs) strategy, like, well, Hey, you know, if we shotgun it, you know, do it this way, it'll, you know, but you got to do like the two beers in like 30 seconds. And then you'll get a buzz for about 10 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then there was a guy's, you know, I'm just going to enjoy it. I was going to drink it slow. And yeah, you know, that kind of thing, (laughs) but you can't keep Marines away from alcohol. Uh, That's, that's a fact. I I was deployed. So this is a non-war story. Yep we were in jamaica on a um humanitarian i'll say quote humanitarian mission because it was not really but yeah. we were there building something for um for some people and um the army said they cautioned us it was like well you know you can't swim and you can't have alcohol while you're in country we're like okay all right. i'm a <laughs> captive thing so, okay got it and, you know you bringing a Hundred and forty Marines, you know, into <laughs> Jamaica, um, and so uh, we're at the end of deployment and uh, the project. And uh, I said, "Hey, I arranged it to, to go to the Wyndham Hotel down in Oches Rios." And uh, MWR, uh, we bought friggin' day passes for everybody, so everybody get. Um, you know, we gave them basically about eighteen hours uh, there with all you could drink. And I still remember one Marine coming up to me going, hey, sir, you know, the uh, Army says we're not going to be able to drink and, and swim. And I said, we're an amphibious force born <laughs> at a tavern.
0: Yeah. We were meant to drink
1: <laughs> and swim. <laughs> and we are going to do that. And and to this day, I still have Marines remind me of that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's true. It is definitely it, well, true. Of course it is true. That's <laughs> friggin'. Of course, it's true. You can't argue that. <laughs> you know. That's
0: why, you know, people bust your balls or whatever. You're like, well, you're the department of the Navy. We're like, yeah, we're in the men's section.
1: The yeah. men's department, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um,
0: oh. okay. So now, um, in between deployments and whatnot, I know you, you said that, uh, you know, you reserve and then you went full time. Mm-hmm. Where were you, you know, your duty stations were at? Where were they? Are they just in?
1: Um, most of the time they were based out of uh, New, New Orleans uh, because that's where reserve headquarters are at. And when you're a senior guy, there's limited places you can go. Um, I then became uh, the senior military advisor, which I always think is a comical title, but I was a senior military advisor to a Navy CB regiment, a third Naval construction regiment uh, based out of Marietta, Georgia. And I like to tell people that I meant that I was the adult supervision. <laughs> so the CBs are wonderful engineers and construction people. They're, they're not tactically proficient in the ways that Marines need them to be, to uh, be effective. Uh, typically. I mean, there's certainly some, some good ones who have learned a lot, but um, you know, my job was to advise on tactics and, uh, and employment and integration with the Marines and, so I was there a lot. And then that's actually who I deployed with the uh, six and seven during OIF five, those at 507 2. So a very heartwarming name, but that was the uh, deployment I was on. But, but that's uh, so reserve life, you know, you're, it's, it's not just once a month for most people. Most people are doing a lot more than that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really almost a, a semi full-time job by the time, especially during the war years. So, yeah, I was flying to Marietta a lot. Got a lot of miles on uh, Delta Airlines. Outstanding. <laughs> so, the, pl- the questions I asked you to kind of fill
0: out online prior mm-hmm. to, you made mention of uh, a particular time when you got uh, promoted to Lance Corporal. Ah,
1: ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, you know what? I, I got to tell you, that's a great question because most of time people just want to talk about frigging war stories and, and yeah. whatnot. Um, so here I am. And of course, you do nothing to get promoted to Lance Corporal. You just right. simply have to not get busted to private, right. you know. And so, uh, you know, I'd done my appropriate time. And promotion was to be in alphas, yep. which of course the Marine Corps, you know, dress uh, green uniforms and and we were in i think winter so they were uh, uh, a heavy wool and you know i i break everything out everything's ironed i've got my long sleeve shirt my tie my tie clip and uh, i have my blouse for whatever reason i'd already put my blouse on and i decide oh i better put edge dressing on my shoe (laughs) so now edge dressing for those who don't know is just basically black ink Yep. And back in this day, uh back in the day, speaking of how things have changed, we still had leather shoes. Yeah. Not the core frames that, that you have now that are all shiny. Uh so not only do you have to spend, you know, time polishing your shoes, you then had to put edge dressing on on the edges. Actually, you don't have to, that's for whatever reason the Marine Corps says you should. Yep. Yeah. And so I decide I'm gonna put edge dressing. So I pull down my secretary door uh and I pull out that bottle black is dressing, and I'm just, you know, carefully doing it. And all of a sudden, I knock the bottle over. And, of course, when you knock something over, what do you want to do? You want to pick it up. Oh, yeah. So I reached down to pick it up. Man, that black ink went all over my hands, my, 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 uh, my blouse, my, you know, my shirt. Um, and this is maybe 15, 10, 15 minutes before uh, uh, formation. It's like, oh, shit. You know, so I'm trying to get it off, but, of course, it's, it's, it's oil-based, right? <laughs> it's, and so, no, it's, it's not coming off. I've ruined my blouse. Um, and so I run down to the first sergeant's office, First Sergeant Bray, who was a very fearsome man, uh, as most first sergeants are. And uh, to my gratitude and surprise, his response was to start laughing hysterically at me. And he says, all right, come here. When we go outside, he takes out a can of gasoline. Says, put your hands out. And he starts pouring gasoline on my arm and my hands. And I, I rub as hard as I can. I get most of that off. But of course, now my blouse is still ruined. My my shirt's still ruined. (laughs) And, uh, he said, go, go put on another shirt. So fortunately I did. And I got changed over and, and there, and, a battalion formation where everybody is in, in, uh, alphas. I am in bravos. I didn't have a blouse to wear. So, uh, I just stuck out and everybody laughed hysterically. I mean, made fun of me and, you know, so that was my moment of deep trauma as a a Lance corporal. And I I actually still, a lot of times, even though I think about it, I get, I get upset thinking about how, how, you know, nervous I was and, and, you know, you, you, whenever you, you want to conform. And when you don't, you know, you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. You know, what's going to happen. But, you know, one of the great lessons the Marine Corps taught me for senior leaders, enlisted leaders, I did not learn this from officers is the role of justice and being just. And, um, you know, he used a little bit of humor, and you know, let me know it was going to be okay, and I'd survive, and um, you know. And so, I, it was a good, it was a good lesson about being a decent person that I like to to remember. But he used to brag; he had seven NJPs. Good lord! <laughs> yeah, well, you can't you can't get away with that anymore. No, you know? <laughs> that's something. No thing that's changed. You know, but back then, uh, NJP was sort of expected before you made it to corporal. Or at least before you made it to Sergeant. Yeah, well, there I know <laughs> I, I had friends that were sergeants two and three times, you know. they yep. get yeah, you know, they
0: lose it and gain it and lose it and gain it. Yeah. And you drive around now and they got, you know, you know, PFC, Lance, Corporal, Lance, Corporal Sergeant, Corporal Sergeant <laughs> on the back of their cars.
1: <laughs> oh, that's that is really funny. I haven't seen that, but yeah. Those guys are, those guys are uh those guys are the guys that are really salt of the earth, and so I—I I will tell you, I don't know how much time we have left. Um, yeah, whatever. Okay, here's <laughs> here's here's one about busted guys that I—I I, uh, it's a good reminder. It's just why you treat people decent and treat as people, and yeah. um, and it has nothing to do with rank. I was on my way out, and I guess I'll tell this in two stories. Uh, I was on my way out of Iraq. Uh, My wife was pregnant. Um, She was supposed to have a baby. They decided to send me home in the advance party to be home uh, with my wife. And I objected. I really didn't want to. We were still, this is May of 2003. And uh, I said, no, you know, I I want, no, you're going, going to the advance party. You got to be in Kuwait. Uh, This is like a Wednesday by Friday night. It's like, okay, how do I get there? The colonel looks at me and goes, I don't know, figure it out. So, I'm like, uh, I'm 600, I'm in Baghdad, and I got to make it to Kuwait City, and there's absolutely, we're in the middle of an invasion. I so, said, so, all right. So, uh, I had two choices. I could um, take a, a helicopter that was about a three-hour ride, two, three-hour ride. We were in, actually, in south of Baghdad, we are in the Ahala, um, or otherwise known as Babylon. Yeah. And um, or I could find a ground convoy. So honestly, don't like helicopters all that much. So I decided to do the ground convoy, plus I want to take some pictures. And I found out this convoy is going to be stopping at this airfield where I had some friends. So I take the ride and uh, we get to the airfield and I was going to have to uh, I was going to figure I take a C-130 and pick up a C-130 from there. And at this point, I had no idea I'd actually be able to do it. I was just right. like, all right, if this is going to work out, here's how it's going to work. My wife was due to have the baby on Monday morning. So I go down to the airfield. There are two tents. There's a big air-conditioned mega tent. It says Army. (laughs) And then there's this little CP tent. If anybody knows what a CP tent, it's not a GP tent. It's the little kind of octagonal round tent that they would put out sometimes. Uh, I don't even know if we have in the inventory anymore, but it's maybe eight or ten feet across and it's circular okay. and there's one and it's it's put up like shit and it's leaning to one side and there's a Marine Corps flag out front <laughs> so I walk you know say, no offense to my Marine brothers but I go walk in the Army tent first because I figure the guys with all the airplanes and he's like alright we'll put your name on a list and you know see what we can do and I'm like I gotta be out of here by tomorrow they're like hey we got a lot of people going you know yeah, I was like, "All right," I walk over to the Marine tent, and there was a private. And when I say he was a private, he was like about a thirty-year-old private. Okay. And uh, and so he had a story, and I said, "Hey, Marine," so here's a situation. I told him. He goes, "No problem, sir. Let's take care of." Him. He says, uh, "Do me a favor." He says, "Just throw your pack somewhere on the tarmac where I can find you uh, if it, if one airplane shows up, we can throw you on." I said, "Okay." So that night was another awesome experience. Uh, Marines showed up with stolen food. They had stolen from the army and it was steaks. <laughs> and, and uh, we grilled steaks on the tarmac with no utensils. We didn't cut them. We just put them on sticks and stuck them over fire. And we ate friggin' amazing steak. Um, and in the morning, all of a sudden, there's a C-130 with the tail down, and it's got a couple of Humvees on it. And there's there's another C-130 with a huge line of people going on. And this Marine comes private comes around, and I go, "Sir," and he says, "Get on that bird." It's like, <laughs> Roger that?" So I pick up my pack, I go run on. I'm the only person on this C-130, me and two Humvees. And uh, I literally climbed in the back of one of the Humvees and slept on the entire flight, which was not long. as like an hour and a half flight, you know, and I made it to uh, Kuwait. I made the flight to Camp Pendleton and then Camp Pendleton to St. Louis. And I was in my wife's room for the delivery of our now soon to be 18 year old son. Um, you know, when he was born. Congratulations. Thank you. So here's the, the sad end of that story though. And this is a story I, I tell in my music. Um, uh, I wrote a song called uh, I Dodged a Bullet. And uh, it was that as when I got home and within a day or so, I found out that the helicopter that I chose not to take, it crashed and killed everybody. Wow. And, you know, uh, six people died on the helicopter and one Marine died trying to save, um, save the Marines on board. And um, I I reflect a lot, real often on 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 that randomness of that decision because it wasn't like I had some great insider intuition. I just did it because I don't like helicopters, you know. And yeah. So, um, yeah, I combined two stories there. But you know, the 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 that young marine, instead of judging him for his problems, you know, he was just whatever it was. He was still a good marine. Yeah, You know, and he, and he took care of me and, uh, always grateful for that. Cause I made it there for my son's birth. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, private, not private, you know, like you're saying yeah. though, you know,
0: you know, respect the person first, you know, if you're a good Amen. guy.
1: Amen. Um, could I, could I talk about mental health for a minute? Yeah. And, and um, and, and maybe that's just kind of where we, we take this, um, Okay. uh so you you obviously have a passion for this and, and i and i i saw the the i know there's a couple organizations is it mission 22 or is it, what's the name of the yeah yeah i'm a, an ambassador for mission 22 ambassador, mission 22 right yep. and and so that tells me that you're very uh involved in in mental health veteran mental health yep. and it's um something that I'm I'm deeply involved in both as a board member of a, of a charity uh but just kind of in my personal life I've chosen to always stay in touch and with with veterans and talk and and yep. just sometimes it's just a text message buddy check yep. you know how you doing good or you know somebody reach out going hey I'm having a bad night I'm having nightmares or you know I drank too much or whatever and and um and and that's not just a problem with combat veterans. Um, every time Marines come back from deployment, there's always a huge uptick in what, DUIs, yep. positive drug year analysis, and you know, uh, domestic assault. Domestics, yeah. Right, and that's because they're all amped up from deployment. They come back and they don't know how to behave, you know, and they and they get into trouble. So when you're used to living that juiced up life, and you come back and you don't find purpose in your life, you don't find something that you find meaning in in home and as you and I were talking earlier about leaving this life, um, that you, um, turn to destructive things. One of the things that's helped me personally is to talk and and to engage people. And I find by giving, talking to veterans, I get as much out as as they they get for me. Um, you know, but the mental health is not, you know, don't make the mistake of thinking everybody's been to war is messed up. Right. Um, war doesn't damage everybody, but it changes everybody. Absolutely. You are always changed, but service changes you. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, listen to what people are saying and, and don't be afraid to ask them hard questions. Are you doing okay? Can I get you some help? Um, you know, and just be there, be a friend and let him know that, you know, that, that there's a, a better day. I've, I work very closely with a young man. Um, I say work, we don't work together. I, I, I have stayed in touch with him yeah. where he's suffered a lot of personal tragedy and his friends who have committed suicide. And suicide tends to run in units, uh, turns to run. It's very experiential and it kind of feeds on itself. It's like cancer. And, you know, he and I when we talk, I just I remind him that he's he's worth it, he's worth surviving, he's worth, you know, finding purpose in his life. And um war doesn't demean you 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 demean yourself. Right. And it's a choice that you that, that you make. You know, my problem honestly was the opposite. My lack of emotion or my lack of remorse or my lack of you know, humanity, human, um, you know, it didn't, things didn't bother me like I thought they should. And it really, as it turned out, it wasn't, it didn't bother me. It's just, I just hadn't found a way to talk about it. Right. So please, um, not every talk has to be a big talk, a big, you know, uh, an important talk could just be saying, Hey, we're doing Friday. Right. And um, you know, I I do buddy checks. I just text people and say buddy check, and they do it now. Do it to me. And and the other thing is, a lot of them think that, hey, you are an officer. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I'm not wearing a uniform anymore. You know, you want to call me sir, you go right ahead. But you know, I'm I have the same pains and the same uh, challenges that you do. You know, my life has been full of a lot of tragedy, and it made uh, has made my life really hard you know and i had to find purpose in in my life and you know i found it through, through music um but you know find it however you can don't be afraid to reach out to people telling stories like you're doing here's a great way to do it but it doesn't have to be formal but please ask for help and ask people if they need help um the worst thing you can do is not ask somebody if they're suicidal right you gotta say hey man i gotta ask you you know are you thinking about killing yourself?" That shock, don't tiptoe around and make go right at the question and ask them, Are you thinking about killing yourself? Because if you ask me, I'll tell you, Yes, sometimes I do. Yeah, I have. Oh, yeah, you know, and then and it's important because sometimes the thing that stops you is somebody interrupting the thought process.
0: Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Um, you know, I don't know if you listened to a couple of my episodes earlier, episodes, you know, I did the same thing, you know, I went through. I hit the reset button on my life Mm -hmm. and it took my grandfather to say, Hey, you know, straighten yourself out again. Kind of thing. Um, show me an Avenue. And like I was trying to tell my listeners and the guys, you know, veterans out there, you know, we're always saying like, Oh, I had a bad top or I had a bad, you know, officer or something like that because he never admitted when he was wrong or he never admitted when he needed help with something. And if you need, if you need help and you're not admitting it to people that are asking and, and talking to you, you're almost doing the same thing. Right. You know, if, you know, if I talk to you or anybody talks to you and, and says, Hey man, how you doing? Just be honest with them. Cause I tell you what, after you're honest with them and you get it off your chest and you're not the only one knows that knows that you're going through this. Yeah. It's a tremendous weight off your shoulders.
1: Oh my gosh. That is so, so true. I, I, um, I I was coaching baseball. Another thing that I do, um, and with a Vietnam vet, and I brought him on to my staff because he, he he was a great baseball coach. But but I also knew he was feeling very isolated, and he had experienced some, you know, he had been a door gunner on a helicopter in Vietnam, and he'd seen a lot. And one day we're talking, he says, was, as you can picture, remember we always talk about the Ricky Recon guys? Oh, yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> he would come to a game wearing cargo shorts that had Sergeant Chevron sewn on them. (laughs) And he's 72 years old, you know? And, um, he says, how come you don't talk about yourself? Why don't you talk about your war experiences? I said, man, that's a great question. I don't know why. And that's actually one of the things I've changed, you know, is to start to do that more now. Um, but some of that buttoned upness is, is ingrained in you culturally so that, you know, as an officer is is different. Um, but it's, again, it's a choice and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with admitting you're weak, that you're sad. There's nothing wrong with crying. You know, there's nothing wrong. You know, I will disagree with general Mattis. There is PTS. Yeah. And, and, uh, it is, it is something that's very real to people. Um, you know, unless you're a UAV pilot, then you can't tell me you got it. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) Sorry, Air Force. (laughs) Um, You know, but it just be honest. And it's amazing what will happen to your life.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I never thought, you know, I've said it before, too, but I'll say it again. I've never thought I would be where I'm at now today in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think by me hitting that, realizing where I was in life and hitting that reset button definitely pushed me to be a better person I've ever thought I could ever be. Amen. You know, amen.
1: and Good it was, for you, man.
0: Yeah, thanks. You know, like I said, I, you know, I got a, I got a little five year old that runs around. You know, my little peanut. So,
1: so, this, this is. I've heard you say a couple of times. You talk about this is actually not an uncommon thing for guys that were um, enlisted Marines who, who didn't do a, a long time, so they might have ended as lance corporal, corporal, sergeant. You've actually been taught really well, and and I can I can see it in you, and I can yeah. see in what you're saying, which is you know, the the wisdom that you have is to, is to just like that first sergeant and then other people in my life who touched out is, you know, the mission isn't over, you know, it's still the fact that you're out doesn't mean it's over, you know, and it isn't just about other Marines either. It's, it's being, you know, don't be a dick, you know, be a decent person in life and, 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 and be caring and, and uh, meet people where they're at. And it's amazing what will happen, but you, you've done well. I mean, I can see the reset is giving you a purpose. You know, we all have our wards, man. Yeah. Oh, but it, but that, that desire to reset is what led me to the Marine Corps. It's what led me, you know, into my other things I do in my life Absolutely. uh, to bring me happiness uh, other than, you know, drinking too much and, you know, doing destructive things. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, listeners out there, if you're listening to this right
0: now and, you know, you want to talk, you know, you can, email me at Dave at American um, Or if you want to talk to somebody else, uh, somebody you don't know or anything like that over the phone, you can call mission 22 at 1-800-273-8255 and hit option one for vets. And if you're in a room with people and you don't want to say it out loud, you can always text it to 838-255. Somebody's going to talk to you. And, uh, you know, you can find me Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I'm all over the place.
1: <laughs> well, I so I don't even know how many people listen listen to uh I'll be honest, cuz I am. I don't know how many people listen to your show. Uh, I hope a lot of people do. Um I I always offer people my phone number. Yep. Um call me. I don't you know, I, um don't ever let there be a reason why you don't talk right. about about things. So I'll I'll wrap it up Um, on my end with, I I see it's been pretty good time. Um, That Marine one day called me in crisis. It was two o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry. His brother called me. He was also Marine veteran, combat veteran. He says, Hey, can you get over here? And I drove over middle of the night and he was sitting in his garage and the lights were off. And there was a table full of empty beer cans. And he was just kind of sitting there, slouched over a little bit. And he's like, hey, you know, kind of just being drunk. And I sit down and just start talking to him. I'm sitting in a chair right across from him. All of a sudden, he pulled out a pistol. Mm. And I said, Oh shit, you know? Um, so I just, you know, he was crying and he was just saying, you know, I'm a piece of shit, you know? Um, and I said, no, you're not, man. You're, you're not, don't do it, you know? And, um, eventually after talking to him, he finally put it down and, you know, Eventually, about two hours later, staggered off to bed and, you know, worked his way out of it. And I understand that that level of deep despair. Yeah. Been there. Um, yet the human desire to, to survive and to persevere is still strong in most people. And it gets it's when it's at that point where they don't think there is any other way, that then they lose hope it's the despair that kills people despair the, the thought that there is no alternative that death is better than than surviving with the pain and i just want everybody to understand that please there is always a better day if you will let it happen one step at a time so you know um yeah so that i you know maybe a somber way to 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 wrap it up but i i do think that that is uh our greatest mission uh, is veterans is to understand that the, that the mission is not over until um, we bring everybody home. Correct. And uh, thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, yeah,
0: kind of, you know, like that quote I've been saying, you know, if you don't heal what hurt you, you're going to bleed on those who didn't cut you. Oh, You know, I love that. <laughs> You know, and I, can, can I? Can I? Is that yours? Is that yours? No, and that's what I was saying. Like, I would love that oh. it was mine. I don't know who it is yet. Um, I'm still trying to actually track down. I mean, you ask people like who said it, and you'd get 15 different people. Oh, I said it. Like, oh. yeah, but where? You know, so I'm trying to track down. The, <laughs> so, if my listeners out there, if you know who actually said it, please send it to me, so that way I can uh, I can do things with it. Um,
1: and I get. <laughs> oh, no, I just. So, my, my, he's laughing because I pulled my guitar out and uh, it's my, it's my blanket. You know, okay. I, I, so my wife will look at me and I'm, she's like, you're not going to start playing, we watching the movie. I'm like, no, I'm just holding it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, for the yeah. listeners,
0: uh, thank you for listening again. And, Chris, amazing, amazing life story. And absolutely would love to have you on and like, a, a you know, a Chris part two episode. You uh, bet. <laughs> Thank you for your story uh, Maybe I'll do some songs for you next time. How's that? Yeah love to love to. Um, yeah. Once again thanks and uh, listeners americanvetpodcast.com and uh, thanks for listening. Thank
1: you Chris and you bet. listeners, stay tuned for the outro
0: If we look to the answer,
1: Mr. why for so many years we achieved so much prospered as no other people on earth it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth the price for this freedom at times has been high but we have never been unwilling to pay that price Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington
0: National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses, or stars of David, they add
1: up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom.